be seated. We invite the kids here, kindergarten to second grade. If there's any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, you'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church. They can find that through the door over here by the piano. And as the kids are heading off to Children's Church, would you open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. We're studying through it. We just finished chapter 1. This morning we're looking at Revelation 2, 1-7. Jesus is speaking through the book of Revelation. Are we listening? This morning we begin the new section of Revelation, which is chapters 2 and 3. It's sort of the next major chunk. We just finished chapter 1. If you were here the last three Sundays, we kind of worked our way through chapter 1. Chapter 1 introduces the book. Uh, chapter 1 gives us the initial vision when Jesus first, uh, when John the Apostle first saw Jesus and Jesus commissioned him to write this book. And he specifically said, I want you to write it to the seven churches that are in Asia. Uh, if you dig out your sermon notes, which is this little insert in your bulletin, you'll see a map of the eastern Mediterranean. And you can see <clears throat> where these seven churches were located. They're all near each other. They're kind of neighboring cities in the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And so Jesus commands that, that, this, that these seven letters and this whole vision be sent to these seven churches. Now, that's already helpful right there, I think, for interpreting Revelation, because it reminds us, first and foremost, that this book was written to seven specific churches. I think sometimes we come to Revelation and it's easy to get lost in wild speculation about the book. Uh, People use the newspaper method for interpreting Revelation. You know the newspaper method? It's where you put your Bible right here, and then you put your newspaper right here. And you try to figure out how they match up. And you say, okay, let's see, what happened this week? There's a health care debate going on. Uh, the president took a trip to China. Okay, let's see, is that anywhere in here? And, and we try to interpret Revelation just by matching it up with world events, which, of course, is a rather uh, loose way to go. And, and I think it's so helpful to say, no, 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 when we come to a vision of Revelation, the first question to ask is, what did the people to whom it was written think when they read the vision? Not that that's the only thing that it means, but let's start with understanding its historical context. So that's why these this, uh, chapters 2 and 3 are so important. They, they uh, put a, a sort of historical framework and foundation underneath these visions that were written to these churches. So these seven churches. And, and if you look at these letters, well actually they're not really letters because they don't follow a traditional ancient letter format. They're more like pronouncements or edicts. It's actually similar to what Caesar would say when Caesar would issue a decree. Except here it's not Caesar, it's the real Lord, Jesus. He's issuing pronouncements to his churches. He's assessing his churches. And if you notice, each of these seven pronouncements to the seven churches, they have a similar format. There's a structure to them that you can easily pick up. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. And every letter begins that way. And then after the command to write, there's some characteristic of Jesus 
taken from the vision in chapter 1 that's brought back into the letter. So if you look at, again, chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's taken from chapter 1 and the vision of Christ there. Or look at uh, verse 8. These are the words of Him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So every one of these pronouncements begins the same. And then there's uh, the main body of each of these pronouncements, which includes a combination of kind of good news, bad news. Jesus is assessing His churches, and He has some commendations and some condemnations. He has some good things to say and then some warnings to give. And then at the end of each of these letters, it ends the same way. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear. And you get the point. It's in every one of the pronouncements to the churches. In other words, what what Jesus is saying to these specific churches also applies to us as we listen to it. So what Christ is saying to them He's saying to us, and if we have ears, we need to hear what's being said. So it is historical, it is addressed to specific congregations, but it has an application to us as well as we read it today. So that's kind of just a quick summary of what's in chapters 2 and 3. So for the next seven Sundays, we're going to work our way through each of these seven pronouncements. And today we come to the first one, the church in Ephesus. Let me just read it. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus has got some good news and some bad news for the Ephesians. He's got some commendations and some condemnations. He has some attaboys and some warnings. Well, actually more than warnings. It comes across, I think, more like a threat, really. But some serious things that the Ephesians, some things they've done really well and some deficiencies in their church that if they don't address, could be disastrous for them. So that's what I want to do this morning. I just want to look at what Jesus has to say to this church and then ask, what is He saying to our church? What is He saying to us today? Because let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's look at what Jesus, first of all, commends them for. What what is this church doing right in Ephesus? And if I could just summarize it this way, I would say, the church in Ephesus has persevered and fought hard to resist false religion and false teachers. The church in Ephesus has clung 
to solid biblical doctrine and they haven't caved in even though there's pressure coming at them from without and from within. Uh, You see it there in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. They've been through some kind of trial. It's been hard work living there in Ephesus as Christians. Look at verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. I'm going to tell you something, folks. It would be really hard to have been a Christian living in Ephesus. That would have been a hard place to name the name of Jesus. Because Ephesus had all kinds of religious pressures in it that would have made standing up for Jesus a really uh, sacrificial kind of thing. You couldn't have been sort of a wimpy, wishy-washy Christian in Ephesus. You would have had to either be one side or the other. See, Ephesus was an important city. It was... Really, in many ways, the lead city of the whole province of Asia. There were major trade routes that went through Ephesus. It had a big harbor into the Mediterranean. It was a very wealthy, well-known city. But the thing, that the real claim to fame for Ephesus was they had the temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. If you remember back to your high school you know, Greek-Roman mythology classes, you know, there's, there was Diana. She was a, a sort of a fertility goddess. And so Diana was worshipped, or or Artemis was worshipped, all throughout the Mediterranean region. And she was sort of a popular goddess. I don't know if there's a popularity scale. Her opinion polls were up. People liked Diana. And guess where her primary temple was in all of the Roman Empire? Ephesus. So pagans would go on holidays to the temple of Diana. Archaeologists have uncovered this temple. It was enormous. It was 420 feet long, 240 feet wide. I mean, it's like longer than a football field. It was huge. The, the covered part of it, the roof was 60 feet high. It was upheld by archaeologists who found 117 pillars that upheld this, this huge temple. And there in the middle of the temple was the goddess Diana. She, she was this, this sort of womanly figure. It's sort of funny, don't laugh, but she was covered with breasts. Because she was a fertility goddess, right? She's called the polymastic figure. That's what theologians call it. Uh, and, and so there she was, and people would come praying for fertility, for their crops, for their families. And it was a huge business. I mean, there's tons of money involved. This was a major destination. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you had one of those books, um, you know, they have books today like 100 Places You Should Visit Before the Age of 21. You can buy these books. Well, if you bought one of those in the ancient world, this would be at the top of the list. You've got to go see the Temple of Diana. And so could you imagine being a Christian there in a city where the very identity of the city was we are the keepers of the Temple of Diana. We protect Artemis. In fact, if you know from the book of Acts, if you know the story in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul first came and preached the Gospel there, remember what happened? The city exploded in a riot. There was a huge uproar. The people went charging into the amphitheater, which archaeologists have dug up, and the thing seats like 24,000 people. It's this huge amphitheater. They still hold concerts and things there today because the acoustics are still so amazing. And, and they all went to this amphitheater, and they're just in an uproar. Some of them you know, were screaming this and that. No one even, some people don't even know why they were there. They're just like, sort of, well, there's a riot going on. I mean, it's something to do. So they went to the riot. Um, and, and it was all over. Somebody is threatening Diana. 
Somebody is threatening the worship of our goddess. So could you imagine being a Christian there and, and saying, you know, I don't actually believe Diana is a goddess. I believe there's only one God. His name is Jesus. I mean, whew, you'd have to be gutsy. You'd have to be willing to persevere and pay a price. I mean, you would just seem unpatriotic, if nothing else, that you didn't worship the God of the city. But not only that, it gets worse. Also in Ephesus, you had the, the center in Asia Minor, in the province of Asia, Ephesus was the center of the imperial cult, the worship of the Caesars. You know, by this time, the Caesars had been deified, and they were worshipped. Uh, archaeologists have found six different temples or shrines to the Caesars in Ephesus. So not only would you have to deny Diana, you would have to deny the Caesars. I mean, talk about unpatriotic. Like, what's wrong with you? Just worship the Caesars, and then you go back to your weird Jesus religion. But come on, you know, be a team player. Why do you have to be so obstinate about this Jesus fellow? So you would have had to pay a price there. Um, Revelation was written around 95 A.D., which was when Domitian was the emperor, almost at the end of his reign, uh, but he was the emperor of the Roman Empire. He was a totalitarian, he was a tyrant, and he, he kept all the strings close to himself to control the empire. And near the end of his reign, the empire was kind of falling apart. So what he did, like any good tyrant does, he cranked up the oppression. He cranked up the control. And he especially cranked up the emperor worship. And he made Ephesus the center for his emperor worship. He has put a big statue of himself there. you know, And they had to worship Domitian. So could you imagine being a Christian there where to show your loyalty to Rome, to show your loyalty to your fellow citizens, you needed to worship these gods that you couldn't worship. I'm telling you, this would have been a hard place to be a Christian. But these Ephesians stood firm. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You've been working hard. You've been persevering. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, have not grown weary. You haven't caved in to the external religious pressures around you. But it was more than that. There were not only external pressures, there were internal pressures. There were, within the Ephesian church, false teachers who came into the church saying, oh yeah, we're Christians. But they had all kinds of weird heretical teachings and were starting to lead people astray in different directions. You pick that up in verse 2. He says, I know your hard uh, your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. Here we go. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. So apparently there are some people who came into the church claiming to be apostles, in other words, claiming to have an authoritative teaching about Christ, uh, to be leaders for Christ. And, but the Ephesians, they were smart. You know, They had been well taught by the Apostle Paul, and they kind of, you know... Sniffed them out. Like, you guys just don't smell right. You know, so your theology smells funny. Something's wrong here. And so they listed, they tested, and they figured out that these guys were phonies. And so they detected them, they rejected them, they ejected them, and they fought against false teaching in the church. Uh, you get it also again in verse 6. Look down at verse 6. He says, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Not really sure. Uh, there's not a lot about them in the Bible. They just appear a couple times here in these letters. From what we can tell, they were some aberrant group of aberrant Christians who taught some false teachings that were contrary to 
what Jesus and the apostles had taught. And, and they were going around different churches. And, and you'll see in some of the other letters that some of the other churches are accommodating to them. But not the Ephesians. <laughs> they were strong when it came to the truth. They sniffed out the Nicolaitans too. And Jesus says, you got this going for you though. You hate what these people do. He goes, and I hate it too. We, we hate the practices and teachings of these false teachers who are leading Christians astray. It's interesting, I won't take the time to do it, but read through the book of 1 Timothy at some time. Timothy, the first, Timothy was written from Paul to Timothy, who was living in Ephesus. And a lot of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is about, watch out for the false teachers. Fight, keep those people from teaching all that nonsense. That's what Timothy had to do. So there were false teachers in the church, but the Ephesians, they were well taught, they cared about the truth. They stood against false religion from the outside. They rooted out the false religion that was creeping up within. They were doctrinally sound. And I would just say, boy, what a timely word for the American church today. You know, To be churches that care about the truth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to love truth and doctrine and sound teaching the way the Ephesian church did. We live in an age that the spirit and sort of the mood of our age is very um, anti-doctrinal. We live in a spirit and an age that is really not concerned with truth in an absolute sense. I mean, people talk about truth today, but it's relativized, it's personalized. It's, you know, well, that's true for me. But something else is different for true for you, and that's your tradition, that's your community, that's your background, this is mine. And, and we can appreciate each other's differences, but truth is personalized to each, each individual. You know, this is kind of the spirit of our age. Um, and especially when it comes to religious matters or spiritual matters, it's very much relativized. Uh, the, the religion of the day is, is spiritualism. You know, everyone's spiritual, right? People aren't religious today, but everyone's spiritual. You know, they say, I'm not religious, but I am very spiritual. Sometimes just to tweak people, I like to say, I'm not very spiritual, but I'm very religious. You know? And then, <laughs> just see what people do. Uh, <laughs> but you know, what, what does it mean to be spiritual? Right? Well, that's the beauty of it. It's whatever you want it to mean. Right? So today, the conventional wisdom says, if you want to know about God or spiritual truths, don't look into an objective thing like a book. No, no. If you want to find God, where do you look according to conventional wisdom? Into your own heart. Listen to your heart. Listen to the voice within. Listen to your intuition. It will guide you into truth. God is within and it's different for each person. So just find what works for you, whatever works now means in a world without absolutes. You know, define it for yourself. And this is, this is the religion of our day. And it's great. You don't even have to go to a temple. You know, you don't have to go to a temple to see the polymastic figure of, of Diana. You want to see God? Just go look in the mirror. There's your temple. It's your bathroom mirror. Just see yourself. There's God. There's truth. And, and that's the religion. And it's kind of it's so squishy. It's hard to put your fingers on. But I'm telling you, don't you think this is what's out there? This is the spirituality of our day. And it's come into the church as well. It's come into the church. So in the church, you know, how do we know God? By studying His Word, by being sound in doctrine? No, 
by listening to our own hearts. Well, I know maybe that's what the Bible says, but, but I just don't feel that's right. right. We live in an age that is concerned with emotion, with feelings, with intuition, with pragmatism, but not with truth. People don't have time for that. And this really comes into the church as well. And so in the church, we're more concerned about making sure everyone feels good and, and, and that things work rather than saying, what does God's Word say? Our, our mission statements in the church have become more important than our doctrinal statements. In the church today, um, you know, there's a hyper kind of pragmatism. Instead of asking, what does God say the church should be and who should we be according to His Word, which is a challenging question, instead we say, well, what's going to get people in the building? You know, what do people like? Let's, let's, let's take a survey of the community. What do people want? That's what they want? Okay, well, let's see. 67% they said they want this. Well, maybe we should make our church like that. You know, people like laser lights. Let's do laser lights. Oh, people like candles, because that's spiritual. <laughs> I don't know why candles are spiritual. Some of them they are. You know, well, let's light candles. Let's create a mood and an atmosphere where people feel what they want to feel. And then, then people will come into the church. You know, it's totally backwards. But, but it's the kind of spirit of the age in which we live. I think you see this especially in the emerging church movement today, um, which has become kind of popular and trendy. It's the latest trendy thing. But if you read the emerging church literature, there's a real discomfort with truth claims. You know, what's cool in the emerging church is to have doubts and questions. And sort of the more doubts, questions, and issues you have, like the more spiritual you are... But, but where does the church stand up and say, thus saith the Lord? Where is our certainty about what God has said? Not that we know everything, or that we're know-it-alls or we're arrogant, but is this not God's Word? Are we not to read it and understand what God has said? Instead of just kind of being like you know, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, just kind of lost, wandering around. Aren't we supposed to know this is what God says, and we're supposed to try to live by it as best we can? according to His Word. If you look at the, the history of the, the theologically liberal Protestant church in America over the last 50 years, it's a story of decline. You know, it's, that's statistically provable that, that the, the theologically liberal Protestant church in America has been hemorrhaging over the last 50 years uh, as it stepped away from a belief that the Bible is the Word of God uniquely as it stepped away from a belief that we are sinners under the judgment of God needing a Savior, and stepped back from that, as it's taken its hands off the idea that Jesus alone is the Savior, and said, well, there's actually lots of beliefs and paths. And as that's happened, as the church has let go of truth, the church is dying. It's dying and emptying out. Because, you know, if you're okay and I'm okay, and there's lots of different paths and ways, it's like, why am I getting up early to go to church on Sunday morning? I mean... Why don't I just worship God with you know, a couple beers in, in my boat fishing for striper? You know, I mean, why not? That's how I find God. Who are you to judge my personal religious expression? You know, and all that stuff. I mean, why do we need to be in church? Why do we need to be anywhere? Why can't we just do what we want? And so that's been the story. As the church has lost its strength, whenever we lose truth, we lose life. Because truth is life. Truth is life. And so the Ephesians receive the commendation of Jesus. Jesus says, well done, Ephesians. You have stood the test. You have held on to the truth. You've guarded the truth. You haven't wimped out or watered down. Even though you had the threat of punishment 
from the community and the threat of false teachers from the inside, you stood firm and held on to the truth. And so Jesus commends them for that. And I think we have to ask ourselves, do we have the same commitment to the truth? He who has, ears, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we have the same zeal for that kind of truth? Are we theologically literate enough that let's, let's say someone came into our church who was really funny and charming and winsome and generous and hospitable and we all liked the person, they seemed really nice, and they started a Bible study and a lot of people went to it because it was kind of a cool new thing to do. And then we suddenly kind of discovered that the person was teaching some weird things. Would we have the theological discernment to pick that out? Or would we just say, oh, they seem so nice. You know, would we be carried away with the substance, or the, uh, the surface of things rather than the substance, which is what we're all about today, the spin image? Would we be caught up in that? Let me ask you, those of you who are elders in the church, who are small group leaders, who are Sunday school teachers, if you were um, in a class teaching or a Sunday school and someone started speaking and, and speaking up a lot and they were teaching some things that yeah, you're pretty sure that this is outside the bounds of sort of historic Orthodox faith. And they were teaching that and proclaiming that. Would we have the courage to confront people and say, you know, I, I hear you're saying, but I don't think it's right. And I really don't think you should be saying that. You know, do we have that kind of conviction? Or would it be like, look, we don't want to make anyone feel bad. We must, we must make everyone feel welcomed at all costs, even if they're teaching things that are going to be harmful to people's souls. Let me ask you this. If there was a person who was teaching false things in the church and starting to stir up dissension around false teaching and we identified it as a church, would we have the courage as a church to excommunicate that person? Would we have the love for truth to be able to say we're voting you out of membership because you can't be teaching these things in the body and be unrepentant about it? Do we, do we understand that heresy is a, is a type of sin? You know, and would we stand for that? Or would we be so wishy-washy and worried that everyone feel good that we would never take a stand for the truth if there was a clear-cut case of someone who was unrepentant? These are the questions I'm asking myself. We need to be lovers of the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to live? You need the truth. It's the way. You can't pull these things apart. They all go together. Jesus is the truth, and so we need to uphold his truth. So uh, just by way of uh, encouragement, if you feel a little bit squishy on Christian doctrine, if you look at the second page of the sermon notes, I just listed a a few resources for further study in Christian doctrine and truth. Um, See, i got four there. i got beginner, intermediate, advanced, and then hardcore. Kind of like at the ski slope. you got like green circle... Blue, oh, I gotta remember this. Blue square, black diamond. Thank you, and then double black diamond, which is like you know, and so, sign a waiver before you go down that slope. Um, so you know, if if you feel like totally new to this, download our proposed doctrinal statement from our website. It's not infallible, it's not perfect, but it's good. You read that. Um, if you want a little more, there's a great Puritan named Thomas Watson who wrote a a book about that big called uh, A Body of Divinity. It's just a great classic summary of Christian teaching. If you really uh, would like a nice um, doorstop, you need to get Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Very clear, very easy to read. Read a chapter a week. And, and if you really want to you know, boast and brag and act like you're a theological stud, 
you can try to work through John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. But there's just a lot of great ways to read and think. You know, you're, you're bright people. You can read theology. You, know, just, you don't have to go to seminary to have read it. You could read it yourselves. You know, we can turn off Dancing with the Stars for one week and <laughs> worship God with our minds. You know, thinking theologically is an act of worship. It is an act of worship. Because you're saying to God, I love you so much, I'm actually going to think about you. I'm going to think about you. It's like if I came to my wife and I said, I love you, honey, I love you. you know, and she goes, oh, well, what, what do you love about me? Yeah. I don't know, I haven't really thought about it. I just love you. I just love you. <laughs> well, what do you love about me? I mean, there's got to be something. Oh, come on, I don't have to actually think about anything about you. I just love you, you know. It's like, if we love the Lord, if we worship the Lord, we'll worship Him with our minds. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so it's really an act of worship. And so the Ephesians, whew, they stood their ground. They held fast to the truth. They didn't give in to the emperor worship or the Diana worship. They, they did not give in to the false teachers who are rising up in their midst to lead them astray. They detected them, ejected them, rejected them, and they stood their ground. And Jesus says, well done, but there was a problem. When the smoke of the battle cleared, when the fog of war dissipated, and they looked, stood there victorious on the battlefield in the battle for truth, they looked on the ground, and there's a casualty. There's something dead on the battlefield that should never have died. There's something laying there on the battlefield that, well, that is about to expire. And it's so dire that even though they've won the battle for truth, if this casualty dies, the whole battle will actually be lost. That even though they've won over here, if they lose on this one issue, they've actually lost the whole battle. What have the Ephesians lost? What are they in danger of losing? They have lost their love. Their love. They've held fast to the truth, but somehow in the battle they lost their love. Look at verse 4. He says, Yet I hold this against you, Jesus says. You have forsaken your first love. Now what, is their, what was their first love? What was it a love? You know, what are they talking about there? I, I think what that phrase means, I'm convinced what it means is, you've lost your original love. You lost your, the former love. You lost the love you used to have. You used to be a loving church. You used to be marked by love. Your first love, but that has gone away. You've lost that in the process. Now look at the next verse. He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So the emphasis is upon going back to a former condition. You used to have love, but something's changed. And you know that happens sometimes in a battle. When you get fighting for things... It's easy to, to, to take the, the battle, the argument, and to personalize it and to stop loving the people against whom you're arguing. If you're trying to root out false doctrine in the church, it's easy to stop even loving the people whom you're confronting and saying, stop teaching that. You can stop loving them as well. Um, it's easy to stop loving God in a battle for fighting for God's truth. It, just, it sort of happens. It's, it's kind of like a couple that they love each other, they get married in those early years of love and warmth, 
And then come the battles of life. you got jobs and schedules and making money and paying off the mortgage and raising the kids. And one day the kids are gone and they look at each other across the table and the love went away and they don't know where it is. It's like, what, what happened? I thought, who are you? <laughs> the love is gone. And so they've lost their love. They, they've somehow, in the battle for truth, they've become somehow calloused and hardened and unloving. I think especially when you're battling for biblical truth. Because the more you battle for biblical truth, the more your sinful nature can feel justified in being unloving. Well, I'm battling for biblical truth after all. This is the most important thing in the world. It is. You know, but, but then that can become a justification for being calloused and cynical and hardened and not treating people with the love of Christ. Um, if, the, if the great error of the theologically liberal Protestant church in America has been a rejection of truth, I would say the great danger for the theologically conservative Protestant church in America is an abandonment of love. You know, we're, we're so fighting and striving to protect God's Word in our culture. And we see the way our culture is increasingly moving away from its sort of moral and religious moorings. And, and, and so it's easy to take a very defensive posture and to lose our love. Like, you know, here we are. We're the Christians inside the church. And the, the culture out there is going wild. It's going, going to hell in a handbasket. And so the church now becomes the fortress. Okay, so man the walls. Don't let them in. You know, get, get the big pot of boiling oil ready over the gate in case they try to batter it down. Lock the gate, bar the gate, bring up the drawbridge, fill the moat, put the alligators in the moat, and, and we're just going to hide here. We're the evangelical, you know, fortress against, you know, holding off the, this siege that we expect to come. But, but what happens is instead of being besieged is people just ignore us because we're not out there loving. We're not shining the light. We just become kind of a historical little uh, anomaly as the culture moves on and we're not engaging. And so I think we need to have this loving engagement, this fearless engagement with the culture where we love people and love them deeply. It's easy for, for love to be lost like that. Um, especially in the battle for truth. But here's the thing. You need truth and love, right? They're like two chambers of the heart. And if you lose truth or you lose love, it dies. You've got to have both. Let me ask you, is, is truth without love really true? Is love without truth really loving? They, they both have to be there. Paul said, speak the truth in love. If you look at the life of Jesus... He perfectly summarized both truth and love. He, he was full-on truth, full-on love, without diminishing either one of them. You know, Jesus always taught the truth. He never, ever, ever compromised the truth. He got in trouble a lot with his sermons because he spoke the truth and it ticked people off. Eventually got him crucified because they didn't like what he was saying. Uh, why do Christians believe in hell today? Well, you know, that's not a talk about an un-PC doctrine. You know, hell is, is tough. Why do we believe in hell? You know the primary reason we believe in hell? Because Jesus taught it so much. He taught it clearly. He taught it exquisitely. He taught it vividly. It's really troubling to hear him teach. So, I mean, Jesus didn't back away from hard teaching. And yet, he was so loving that even the people who were on the road to hell were running, turning around and running to him 
You know, the same guy who said hell is real is the guy who was after the hell-bound people, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the rejects from society, who all the religious people were saying, Jesus, why are you hanging out with them? I mean, we already know who they are and where they're going. But Jesus says, this is why I came. I came for them. He loved them. And they were drawn to him in his love. And I'm just convicted. I'm like, is anyone drawn to my love? The love of Christ in me? Am I a loving person? You know, people say, oh, you're this and you're that. But am I loving? Paul says, you know, I I can speak in the tongue of men's and angels, but if I have not love, I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. I I give my body to the flames, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. It doesn't mean anything without love animating the, the, the body of truth. Love and truth go together. Consider the gospel message itself. The perfect expression of truth and love together. What is the gospel message? It is a message of brutally honest truth. That we are sinners. That we stand under the judgment of God. That there's no one here who's going to heaven on their own merits. We all stand guilty before the bar of God's judgment. But the amazing message of the gospel is that even though we're sinners under God's judgment, God sent His own Son, Jesus, to bear the punishment on the cross that we deserve. So that if we put our faith in Him... We can be forgiven and have eternal life. I mean, that is hard truth. And that is amazing love. And they both come together. It's more truthful than the world ever wants to admit. And it's more loving than the world could ever understand. The truth and the love of the Gospel. That we are sinners saved by God's grace alone. And so so at the very core of the Christian message is truth and love. In fact, we can even take it a step further. At the very core of God is both truth and love. God is truth and God is love. What does it say in 1 John 4? People love to quote this. God is love. But 1 John chapter 2 says God is light. He's truth and love. And, and so I think we're, even, we're really talking about the very character of God in His holiness and His mercy, in His justice and in His kindness, in His truth and His love. And so to be followers of God and to know Christ, we have to be people who love the truth, but who are also loving and compassionate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice this, that if we do not live in love, we are in danger of losing our status as a true church. Look what it says in verse 5. He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and what? Remove your lampstand from its place. Now what are the lampstands? you remember this from last week? They're the, the symbol of the presence of a true church in, before Jesus. Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He's tending the churches. He's caring for the churches. They're to shine the light of God in the world. But Jesus says, if you guys don't get this love thing right, I'm taking your lampstand away. You're not going to be my church anymore. Do you understand this? That just because a group of people meet on a Sunday morning in a building and have a sign out front that says church on it, do you understand that doesn't make them a church in God's eyes? That a true church is a spiritual body, not not an organizational kind of thing. The sign out front can say 3rd Presbyterian Church or 5th Episcopalian Church or whatever it is. Um, But if the Word of God and His truth is not upheld, it's not church in God's eyes. And 
if the people in that church aren't loving each other and growing in love as a community of Christians, it's not a church either. And Jesus says, either one of these is going to remove your lampstand, which is a real threat. In fact, it's not only that. It's a threat to their salvation. He says to them, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if we don't prove our salvation, if we don't demonstrate our salvation by loving, we can't have confidence that we're going to be with the Lord someday. And so, not, not that we're saved by our love, but our love demonstrates our salvation. And if we don't demonstrate that love, we get, we're, how do we have confidence that someday we'll be with Christ? So we have to be overcomers. We have to love as well as hold on to the truth. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is among us and that He can change us. Jesus can change our hearts. That He has risen from the dead. He is walking among the lampstands. Do you know that Christ is here with us right now? That He has the power to change our hearts. That even if my heart has become dry and bitter and resentful and cynical and harsh and judgmental, you know, like an apple that, like an apple core that's been sitting out in a driveway for two weeks, and it's just all, it's all brown and and hardened and shriveled. So it doesn't even look like an apple anymore. That's how some of our hearts look. You know, there's no love. It's just anger and bitterness and cynicism. And we need Christ to change our hearts. We can't change our hearts. Jesus can. He can take an unloving heart and fill it with love. He can take a cowardly heart and fill it with courage for His truth. He can take an unbelieving heart. Maybe you're like, there's a part of me that wants to believe, but I just can't. Where do you get faith to believe? How do you come up with faith? Only Christ can give it to you. So just come to Christ and say, like the blind people in the, in the New Testament, Lord, I want to see. Like, like the, the lame people in the New Testament, Lord, I want to walk. Like the dead people that Christ raised from the dead, He can give us new hearts. He can make us into these people. He can make us overcomers. And so we need to come back to Christ and just pray that He would strengthen us and change us and transform us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God grant us grace to overcome and be lovers of the truth and lovers of people. Let's pray.